Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Toma Pierre. Toma is someone who's written extensively on contemporary Islam, the Islamic and Middle Eastern studies, with a, a real focus on Syria. He's done a range of, of fascinating articles, uh, op-eds, and perhaps most of you will know him from his, his wonderful Cambridge book, Religion and State in Syria, the Sunni Ulama from Coup to Revolution. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's it's a pleasure. It's really exciting to, to have you here. And Thomas, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about how you got involved in, in researching this field, please? Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's not a very interesting story. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is no particular event or, you know, personal background that explains my interest for sure. the Arab world. Uh, I just, you know, remember that I, I, as, as far as I can remember, I was always interested in that region. Right. Uh, perhaps, but, you know, at the age of five, five or, I mean, four or five, I, was already, I had already some interest for, you know, the little, of course, very little I, I knew about that yeah. part of the world. Okay. Which were at that stage, of course, just some images, right? Yeah. Um, and although perhaps, even though I was very, uh, I know I was born 1979, but... Uh, uh, as I grew up in the 1980s, of course, uh, the, 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 the region was, you know, coming up very often in the media. Uh, it was the time of the war in Lebanon in particular, which I think, yeah, perhaps, uh, I mean, something I remember quite clearly because, you know, there were Western hostages. Yeah. Uh, you know, being taken in Lebanon, which, of course, we were hearing a lot about in the Western media. Uh, some terror attacks uh, in France, for instance, already. Um, so I could at least understand that there was some connection between that part of the world and, and, and you know, and this one. I mean, the, and Western sure. Europe. Uh, also because of some, perhaps, you know, strange similarities and and. And differences at the same time between the people living in the region and and us. Uh, you know, I could hear Lebanese people speaking excellent French in the media, right. without really understanding why <laughs> they sure. were speaking French that well. Uh, you know, it just perhaps you know created some particular relationship with that part of the world. You know. Uh, both mysterious and distant and, and, and close yeah. at the same time. Uh, and of course, I, I mean, quite early on, I dreamt of knowing more about it and perhaps one day understand anything about that <laughs> civil war that was happening in Lebanon at the time. Sure. Uh, because, of course, I, I didn't get anything, right, by the age of, of seven or eight. I just knew it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and well, I, of course, I, I didn't know that many years later I would, you know, be doing research on, on another civil war, perhaps even more, you know, complex than the Lebanese one in, in Syria. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, after my, my childhood, I, I, it was just somewhat by chance, you know, I just, as many people, started really discovering the region as a tourist. Really liked it. Uh, decided to study Arabic at university. 
to, to, to specialize on the Middle East at MA level and then PhD. Uh, but that's pretty much it, you know, sheer interest, but, you know, nothing uh, I could clearly identify, you know, in terms of sure. family background, for instance. But it's intellectual curiosity then. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Absolutely, think... and perhaps, you know, Syria more specifically because... By the time I got really, I mean, seriously interested in that region by, yeah. let's say, uh, 1999, 2000, Syria was still a very close country of which we knew very little. And, and I just wanted to know more about it. Yeah, Sure. And and so I guess that is the, the intellectual curiosity again, challenging you to do something that, that wasn't necessarily as easy as, as going to Lebanon at that point and, and understanding what was happening in Lebanon. Yes, of course. I mean, Lebanon was a, a very open country uh, at the time, and and yeah, and, and you know, of course, there over the last eight years, a, a great deal has been written on Syria. But uh, even in terms of you know academic research by by the early two thousands, there, there was I mean there there were some important works out, but uh, there wasn't much. Sure. Uh, and I quickly discovered that there was a lot more to do. And some aspects of Syrian society weren't well known. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's it's it's really interesting to hear you say that. What was it then within all of this that that sort of piqued your interest in in Islam then? Well, I'm not sure. It, it, well, I, th- I think the reason was I, I really started doing research, so at, at postgraduate level. You know, uh, yeah. MA and then and then uh, uh, PhD right after nine eleven. Right. So I would say you know the, the the issue of political Islam in general was becoming you know tr- trendier than ever. Uh, so I, would, I, I mean, if I look at what you know some of my colleagues did at the same time, I mean, people of my generation, we were there were some some you know general encouragement to, to focus on, on Islamic movements, uh, which was not necessarily the case in the, the years preceding 9-11, because you had these theories that uh, Islamic movements had failed, that they were on the decline, and so on. And of course, uh, it, it changes after 9-11. So it, it was part of that. Uh, also, you know, by, by somewhat by accident, I started doing an MA thesis uh, or MA dissertation, sorry, about an Islamic movement in Lebanon called Al Ahbash. Right. Um, and it was extremely difficult to study for several reasons, but I, I would say I didn't get you know proper access to, to the group. Uh, decided to give up, but while doing that research, I realized that these people were talking a lot about Syrian Muslim scholars. Uh, usually to criticize them. But so they were talking a lot about people, I, I mean, uh, about whom there wasn't much, you know, literature available. Uh, so, you know, in a way, I, I discovered that, I mean, they seemed important, but, but yeah. not much was known about them. So, so that's how I discovered it was a worthy uh, topic to study. So what sort of scholars, are, who are we talking about here then? You mean Syrian scholars? Yeah, the Syrian scholars. Who is it that we're we're looking at, or you were looking at at this point? 
Well, of course, the, the, the big names, the people who were known, uh, I would say that, that you could know about from, from the, the, the available literature were especially, you know, regime sponsored or, you know, pro-regime pro scholars like the, the late Grand Mufti of the Republic, Ahmad Kaftaro, who died in 2004. Uh, and Saeed Ramadan al-Bouti, who was assassinated in his mosque in 2013. Yeah. So, you know, there, there was some literature about them. But uh, I had some anecdotal evidence that, you know, there, there was, you know, much more happening in Syria in terms of religious networks. And especially that some of them were not necessarily, you know, as, as much aligned with the regime as the, the people I just mentioned. Yeah, uh, but again, I know at this early stage, of course, I knew very little about them. But I, I had some anecdotal evidence that there was some, you know, interesting dynamics yeah, uh, happening right. in Syria. So then you you Which went on to do I, your your PhD. Sorry, can you tell us just a little bit about that, please? Well, uh, that that that, this, that was the, the the main focus of my PhD was to look at this sort of gray zone, which wasn't you know either what you could call official Islam, you know, regime-sponsored figures yeah. like the, the ones I mentioned, and uh, the, the outright opposition, which, anyway, or Islamic opposition, which was, which was banned, of course, at the time, the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, more radical groups. But I discovered that in between you had networks of Muslim scholars who sometimes had a, a record of, of uh, opposition to the regime. For some of them had somewhat reconciled with the regime. Uh, they had come back from exile, for instance. Uh, but they were, I would say, still on, on ambiguous terms with the regime. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the, the Rifai family, which was... Uh, leading a, a group called the Zaid Movement at the time in Syria, which I discovered was extremely influential. They were running very large Islamic charities. Uh, they had thousands of followers. They were running very influential mosques in, in central Damascus. Uh, and they were in some sort of you know, complicated partnership with the regime. I mean, the leaders, they were, they, they, they spent 15 years in Saudi Arabia because they opposed the regime in the early 80s. They had come back. Uh, yeah, so they, they were in a, in, a, in a complicated partnership with the regime. And they're, they're the kind of people I focused upon in my work. That's, it sounds like a fascinating space to be operating as sort of, as, as tolerated by the regime in this this gray zone, as you say, and I, I take it this is what what later became your your Cambridge book, is it? That's it, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely fascinating how you trace this this complex set of relationships between these these clerics, these these members of the ulema who who have their own unique sort of position within Syrian society that is so ambiguous and shaped by a range of different factors such as the sort of the the legacy of the the saudi stay if you will tell us a little bit about the book then Thomas. what is it that you're trying to do what do you hope to achieve and, and what are the main arguments at play okay i would say that most of the literature that was published on syria by you know by the time i did my research was very top down uh, in its approach, sure. it was very much focused on the regime, even more so on the, the figure of Hafez al-Assad and then his son Bashar, 
Yeah. You, know, you, 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 you'll find a, a portrait of, of the Syrian president on every single book about Syria, including mine, by the way. Yeah. Uh, which uh, you know gives you an idea of you know the focus on on the the, the head of the state. And, and what I did was, in a way, a more bottom-up study of of, of uh, relations between state and society in Syria. By looking at how the essentially the the, the, the the Syrian regime failed in its ambition to reshape Syria's religious field uh, according to its its will, okay, they they basically you know initially I mean as a Basist regime they wanted to modernize it and then it failed and then what they did essentially was to cut out the parts they didn't like. Yeah. By just you know either killing people, jailing them, uh, sending them into exile, uh, especially during in the early 80s during the the, the 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 uprising. Right. And what I show in the book is that the regime was in the end was was forced to somewhat reconcile with religious actors, which they didn't like which they always deemed uh, unreliable. And in a way, rightly so, because many of them defected again in 2012. Sure. Uh, but but, 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 but in, during the first decade of Bashar's rule, they were forced to reconcile uh, because of the, you know, the, 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 the social res- uh, capital, because of their economic resources. And what what I describe happens, you know, to, to, to a great extent, it's it it's, it happens in the context of Syria's economic liberalization uh, under Bashar, right? Where so, he is uh, engaged in a process of rapprochement with the bourgeoisie. Yeah. And, and 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 Muslim scholars are part of the package. I mean, if you deal with the bourgeoisie in Syria, and I'm not talking here of you know the cronies like. Bashar's cousin, cousin uh, Rami Mahlouf. But if, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the bulk of the bourgeoisie, the, the urban bourgeoisie in Syria, if you deal with merchants in a way, you're always dealing at the same time with scholars. Because yeah. these two social categories are, are, are very, very closely related. You know, they marry each other uh, and so on. And, you know, merchants fund mosques, charities, religious schools and so on. So, I mean, that, 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 would, that was part of that process. Uh, and, you know, we, I show, for instance, that when it came to, to charities, and which, you know, the, the growth of, of private Islamic charities was also part of the process of economic liberalization because, right. you know, the state somewhat retreated from some social responsibilities and, and charities, including, uh, and, and not including, but, you know, primarily Islamic charities stepped in to compensate. Um, and, you know, you might think that the regime would just favor those Islamic charities that are run by the most reliable pro-regime clerics. Uh, the problem is that these people don't are not that good at raising money. Right. For, for, I'm, I'm being a bit simplistic, but it's because sure. people don't like them. Right, okay. Um, uh, whereas other people who have a record of opposition and, uh, to the state and have maintained some independence from the state were much better at raising funds for their charities, and so they were running far more effective uh, charitable projects than others, which is why the regime had to deal with them. Sure. Uh, and, and also, you know, it's not only about economy. There is also the, the broader political context of the of Bashar's first decade in power, 
uh, with the succession of international or foreign policy crisis. You know, the invasion of Iraq by the yeah. U.S., the, the, the Syria, Syria, the Syrian army's forced departure from Lebanon in 2005, uh, Syria's ostracization following the assassination of Prime Minister Rafik al-Hariri. So the regime was very isolated for a couple of years, uh, and they needed domestic support you know, to face these problems, which they, they, they sought, you know, partly from Muslim scholars who had some... Uh, who were you know, seen as credible you know, by, by much of the Syrian population. Sure. So I, I have a couple of questions just following on from that. And um, I think the, the first one is that people, when they talk about Syria now, um, they, they have a, a view of sort of a, a sect-based domination of sort of, of, of religious identity, that there's this, this schism that, that emerged. But, but how, how accurate is that, do you think, under Bashar, from, from the time that he came to power until the, the outbreak of the war? I must say that, you know, among among scholars, I, I'm perhaps among the strong proponents of the idea that the Syrian regime is essentially an Alawite-dominated regime. And I don't think this is contradicted by by what I did, you know, yeah. by the research I did on its ambiguous relationship with the you know, Sunni religious elites. Because I think one should not confuse uh, transsectarian partnerships uh, and you know cooptation and so on, and the the, the, the you know the sectarian complex complexion of the of the, of the of the states the states ruling elite. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the, the decision makers who who matter in Syrian politics are you know the the ruling clan, uh, the main you know powerful generals in this in the the, the intelligence apparatus in the military. And so on. They're eighty percent Alawite. Right. Uh, they're the real. They're, they're the, the people who make decisions that really matter in Syrian politics. But now, when you're ruling a country which is, has a majority of you know Sunni population, and where, for instance, the bourgeoisie is uh, very predominantly Sunni, then you have to engage in in partnership with these people. Sure. I don't think it changes the, the nature of the of the core of the regime, uh, but. You cannot just, you know, the country on your the, the country on your own without establishing these kinds of partnership, which are transsectarian. Sure, yeah, that, that makes a great deal of sense, I guess. And and from that, then, how does how does the relationship between religion and state evolve? Do you think from from Bashar coming to power and then to to the present day? Do you think that there has been a a change in the relationship between these different um, different members of the dilemma? I mean, there, there was tremendous change after 2011, sure. 12. You know, yeah, brought tremendous change. You know, b before I, I discuss that, I just like to to, to highlight something that it, you know, it, it, although uh, at the time I was carrying out my research on you know the relations between the state and the religious elites, you know, there was a, 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 a you know a, a growing sense of partnership between the two sides. You could always feel that there was at the same time very strong distrust, right? Uh, including between the regime and people who were supposedly very pro pro regime. 
Right. Okay. Uh, and distrust, distrust very often, you know, uh, stemmed out of sectarian issues. Like, you know, so, something that was very detrimental to the relationship between the regime and the ulama by 2006-7 was uh, the, the issue of Shiitaization. Uh, so you had, you know, it was partly based on rumors, partly based on some facts. You know, this idea that, that, that Shia, Shia missionaries were converting people in, in Syria. So converting Sunni to people to, to Shiism. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I mean, I don't have the time to go into details or, uh, uh, right now, but uh, it, was, it was really undermining relationship between the regime and, and even, you know, even such figures as Sheikh al-Bouti, who was always loyal until he died, but he was at the same time very critical of what, in his view, was, you know, the toleration of Shia missionary activities by the regime in Syria. Uh, so, so the, the, the sectarian distrust was always there, even at the height of this partnership between the regime and the and the, the Sunni ulama. Now, I'm coming to the your, your question about you know the changes we witnessed over the the last decade. I mean, the main one is that the 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 state, uh, I mean, the state, the, the regime lost the support of a, uh, a very significant part of the Sunni ulama during the conflict. Um, it's, I would say among the, the, the heavyweights, you know, the people who were seen as you know credible scholars, respected scholars, uh, especially in Damascus, perhaps the majority of them defected and left the country. So, right. so, so the the, the 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 regime was left with a, a, few, a small number of credible scholars, and, and when uh, Al Bouti. Uh, died and Al Bouti was at the same time the most, perhaps the most vocal and the most credible uh, supporter of the regime among the ulama. But when he was killed in 2013, the regime was left with virtually no one. Uh, I mean, no one by no one. I mean, like very, you know, minor religious figures. Yeah. Uh, and like, if you look at the, the, the man who's now. Uh, 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 the, the Friday preacher at the Grand Mosque in Damascus, he was an absolute nobody before 2011. Sure. And, you know, he got, he was appointed there because he was fiercely pro-regime, not because he was especially respected or, yeah. uh, or known by, by, by people. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a very serious loss from which, as far as I know, the, the, you know, the regime hasn't, you know, recovered yet. Right, uh, and that's, it's it's something that that takes time, uh, you know. Yeah, of being, course. Yeah, it's a matter of decay, right? Sure. So I guess, Thomas, with you, um, you pointing out about the the real depth of this this issue, I guess people really need to to read your book to get an awareness of the nuances involved. And again, I, I strongly urge people to do that. But I'm also conscious that we're we're running out of time. We've taken up a great deal of your time already, Thomas. So for that, I'm thank you. But if I may, just one last question. And sure. and that relates to to the stuff that you've been writing recently for for a range of, of different outlets about how things are are moving forward now. And wh- where do you see things playing out with this uh, this sort of these issues that that we've just been discussing, leaving a, I guess a legitimacy deficit in the the sort of the Sunni clerics. How how does that aid the sort of I'm somewhat reluctant to say post-conflict reconciliation because 
there, there is a whole host of issues involved with that phrase, but for brevity, perhaps moving out of conflict, how, do, how does that, that legitimacy deficit impact that desire to try and build peace? I would say it, it's not, uh, perhaps not a very relevant dimension for the years to come, perhaps for the decades to come. Right. Uh, what I mean by that, if you look at Syria in the 1980s, and at the same time you had a, a similar process of political restoration after three years of uprising, of course it didn't reach you know, the, the level yeah. of violence and 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 quasi-state collapse that we, we witnessed in the, in, during the past decade. But uh, you, in the 1980s, you also have the state, you know, reasserting its authority after, after it's been, you know, very strongly challenged by the opposition, and specifically the Islamic opposition. Uh, you know, it's, it's essentially a decade during which the, the regime is ruling by brute force. And, uh, you know, it's just disappearing people and jailing them. Uh, and then you have the, the, the cult of personality also developing during uh, that decade. I would say legitimacy is a, is a very secondary concern. Uh, I'd say that you know the, this quest for for leg, like a more genuine legitimacy, uh, which can be provided by people like religious scholars, is something that becomes you know more important later, once you know the regime feels confident enough to you know open the, the political space somewhat. Right. Or, sure. As, and as happened in you know in the decade prior to, uh, to to the uprising. I mean, it's not political reform, but, sure. you know, uh, let's say people are allowed to do a bit more than, than what they they used to. Uh, I mean, we're not there yet. And, and I'm even, you know, strongly wondering if the regime will reach that stage because it's, in a way, much weaker than it was in the 1980s. Yeah. It has, you know, yeah, sure. foreign supporters, Iran and Russia, but in terms of infrastructure, resources... And so on. It's much weaker than it, than it used to be. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really an open question. I mean, I, I don't know if the if the, the we will reach that stage where the region feels confident enough to you know, uh, yeah, to sure. reopen the political space and then you know seek some genuine legitimacy for opinion makers like yeah. religious scholars sure well i guess there's there's lots to think about and lots um lots to happen before we get to that point i guess but tom i thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and uh, thank you very much i look forward to seeing seeing your your work develop in the coming months and years so thank you so much for joining us until the next time thank you, very much. Thank you for listening Bye bye